hey guys, I know I'm biased because I wrote these books, but if you're sitting there and you're getting ready to listen to this episode and you're thinking, when this episode's over, what am I going to do? Well, I'm looking for a book to read. I want to laugh out loud. I want to piss my pants while I'm sitting on the sofa. I got you covered. The Flight Attendant Joe series. Fasten your seatbelts and eat your fucking nuts. Flight Attendant Joe and I'm Just Here for the Layovers, all available on Amazon, iTunes, Nook, and Kobo. My recommendation is once this episode's over, you want to continue the laughter, go purchase the ebook or the paperback, and you will be laughing your ass off, I promise. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of Grounded with Flight Attendant Joe. Today, stand-up star Jeff Klein called in. We talked about the first time he ever did stand-up in P-Town. I was really curious about what it's like to be an openly gay comic based in the Tampa Bay area writing jokes for a crowd that can tend to be more conservative than what I would be used to in the San Francisco Bay Area. We talked about self-deprecating humor and how easy it is to make fun of yourself, to pull people in, pull the audience in so they like you. We talked about all the animals he has. He says he has nine tortoises, but he's probably lying. It sounds like there's more than that. I could have talked to Jeff all day long. His voice is so deep and so sexy. I had to mop up the floor after we were done. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Jeff. It's bad though. I do have my beard on because I need it. I wear my beard like women wear spanks. It's a issue. If you don't know the reality of that, though, anybody that has had a beard knows every now and again we have to take them off just to remember how fat we are. It's a sad truth. (laughs) Hey, Jeff, welcome to Grounded with Flight Attendant Joe. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks for having me. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fantastic. How are you today? You know, I'm doing well. This is the first, this is the earliest recording that I've ever done. So I have my coffee. Um, I might, I hope I don't have to stop to go to the bathroom, but we'll see if we can power through this. I didn't know what your constitutional schedule was. So we're just, we'll work around it. Take uh, me into the bathroom with you. It's fine. <laughs> well, I could do that. Um, <laughs> I played that clip um, because I connected so much. I, I feel naked without a beard. I think in the last decade, I've only shaved my beard twice. And the moment that I did it, I did it out of like chaos in my brain. Like I need a change. And then I shave my beard. I'm like, why was that the change? <laughs> I, I, I tried to do acting for a little while. And every time I got booked at like some commercial for Disney, they always wanted clean shaven. So I'd shave off my beard for it. And two things would happen. One, my husband would look at me and just say, mm, I don't like that. And then <laughs> two, I'd run into one of my best friends, DJ, who's conveniently also a flight attendant, funny enough. But he would see me and just do this dank face, like Brussels sprouts are cooking in the kitchen face and just not even talk to me every time he saw <laughs> just no, no. And I was like, I get it, but it's my face you're seeing people. They do not care for my face. Well, I understand that it, when I shaved those twi- two times, my husband would say, oh, what, what did you do? Well, I shaved like I'm not <laughs> ugly. Are you saying I'm ugly? Because I think that's the message that they don't know that they're delivering is they're basically saying, oh, God, you should have a beard to cover all that mess. 
I think they do know that they're delivering it, and they're very <laughs> rude people is what I think. That's my thought. I think they're very selfish because basically they're just saying all that because they have to look at us. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but I um I agree with you. Like I wear my like when I have my beard, I feel like a young um Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford. I walk around proud. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll take selfies. When I don't have a beard, I feel like Jabba the Hutt. It's it's so true. It is one of those I mean it's, let's be honest, it's cheating. And that's kind of the reference I made to Spanx on there. Because it is cheating. Because you can give yourself a jawline with a beard. And you can cover up a chin or two. Like, it is. I don't trust, because both of us don't have very long beards. They're, they're shorter beards. But uh, I'm always curious what's behind, you know, like the, the hillbilly beard, that really long one. What happens when they shave? Because that's a lot of unknown under there. Well, yeah, there's probably a lot of um, acne. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's three different shades of tan under there, guaranteed. Now, my husband, he has gone on this crusade to have a very big beard, and it's gotten like homeless slash Oregon hippie type. And okay. I'm now treating him like he treats me when I shave. So like it gets really long and I'm like, Oh, it's getting a little too long because now when I walk in and the lights are out, I think there's a, like a stranger in my house. Right. Um, well, he still has to shave. If he just lets it go completely, has he started up a coffee shop in your house? If that starts to, because at some point you, does, you just become a barista. If it becomes too big, he does make the most coffee. I'm not going to lie, but, um, no, he, he he does he he it's actually kept very well. He trims it. Um, I mean, he puts his balm in it. It's very good. But I had gone to work. I was gone for a week and a half, and when I came home, he had gone to the barber, and it was trimmed up, and it was shorter. And I said, "Oh, that looks so nice." And he goes, "Was it not nice before?" And I was like, "A oh, touche." <laughs> Ooh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that bit. I really connected that. When did you start doing stand up? So I started about five and a half years ago, and it, it, it was a fun loop. I had been trying to do acting, and um, which I was not good at, but not for lack of trying. And um, my husband and I were on vacation in Provincetown, and I've always loved stand-up, and I thought I was always kind of scared to do it because it takes a lot of writing, and I wasn't sure on my writing ability. And... We're in Provincetown. We're hanging around with a couple friends that live up there and live down here in the St. Pete area. And they said, what's new? And I said, oh, I'm thinking, my exact words, I'm thinking about going to an open mic to watch people do stand-up and maybe do it. There's a lot of thinking and maybes in that sentence. That same night, it was a Saturday night, he texts me and goes, hey, we work at a bar that does stand-up here. Um, I've got you five minutes on Wednesday, bring your best five minutes set. Mm -hmm. So I spent the first half of my vacation in P-Town stressing <laughs> out and writing five minutes because I do not have a five minute set at that point. And that, and then I went up on stage in front of seven people, three of them lesbians, and I made them laugh. And I thought, well, this is so much easier than acting. I just have to be myself on stage. That's lovely. Right. And then, uh, yeah. I, I gave up acting and, and went on to just talking about myself on stage. Was it easy for you to come up with that five minutes? Because I know when I've done stand-up, it takes me like 
three hours of writing to get like five minutes of stand up. Um, did it come natural to you? So once once it started clicking, it did, and it's a twofold story. Because once it started clicking, it did, come, and I and I really had it. And then I was pacing out on our little balcony and making sure my five minutes was right on time because I've never done stand up, and I feel like you should be right at five minutes. If you're somebody's being nice and giving you five minutes, don't go over. Mm-hmm. And I have it all kind of worked out. And then the day of, um, I go take a shower. I come back into the bedroom and my husband has kind of my book open and he's reading. And all he says is in this exact tone. So, uh, these are jokes. <laughs> like, um, oh no. Yeah. Oh. He's like, no, 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 no. They're really funny. They're really funny. But, um, I had a bit about our cats being killers and how our house was a refugee camp for lizards. Um, and he's like, here's the thing. The lizard bit's funny, but you're in Massachusetts. Nobody knows what a lizard is. There's no lizards up oh, here. So, okay. Yeah. And he's like, so you should probably change that. And I'm like, that's a minute and a half of the jokes. And it's tonight that I'm performing. He's like, yeah, just write something about the town. So unfortunately, he's correct. Right. Uh, and so I, I had to rewrite kind of that bit. I dropped it and just rewrote some quick jokes about the town, about Bear Week, about whatever. And um, and they hit really well. So then it also kind of gave me that confidence about like, okay, you can be in the moment. You can not overthink things. You know, you can be. So again, it's still writing. But and then what I loved was he says to me, he goes, I'm your uh, Jane Wagner. And I said, I don't have time to Google things as well as rewrite. <laughs> Just tell me who that is. And, uh, and I get, I'm not a good gay for knowing that, for not knowing that, but obviously that's Lily Tomlin's uh, wife and writing partner for the last, whatever, 40 years. But I was like, stop telling me names. I don't know. Stop telling me to rewrite my set. I, I know who Lily Tomlin is. I love her, but I did not know that that was her wife of like four decades. So I'm a bad gay too. Though. Yeah. Yeah, we're both bad Well, gays. so you get me. I get you. I got you. <laughs> the beard, I got you. So the first time you ever did stand-up was in P-Town. Yeah. But you live in Florida. So I did a little research because I tell all my guests on this podcast that I stalk you online. Um, and I stalked you online. <laughs> and I found that you had wrote something on Instagram about you did a show at Beef O'Brady's. They didn't like the gay jokes. Then you did a 90 year old birthday party. They, you didn't do any gay jokes and they loved it. So yeah. how does doing stand up in Florida shape your sets? It's, it's actually been really good because typically, so I live in St. Pete, which obviously we get a lot of tourists. So when I'm doing shows in St. Peter and Tampa, it's filled with people from all over the country. Okay. So I think that's when I'm writing for them, I'm writing for a more broader general audience, which has been good because every time I've traveled and I've done comedy, it seemed to have worked wherever I go. So in general, my writing has helped me uh, write to a broader audience, but occasionally you go to a small town in Florida, like Punta Gorda's Depot Brady, mm-hmm. uh, where the, average age was 80 years old and it was 110 people in there and they do not love the gay guy on stage especially in three minutes into your set once you say it and all your little buttholes tighten up and you go oh boy this is gonna be a long 25 minutes but it was a weird it was a, uh, 
I always joke with my friends afterwards. I was like, sometimes it's work and sometimes it's easy. Like, you know, that's just the reality of it. Sometimes you have to work for every joke. And I'd get them on board and then I'd lose them again. And then I'd get them on board and then I'd lose them again. And, and it was the next day, uh, as I was still shell-shocked from it, I had to do a 90th birthday party. And again, it was median age of 80 to 90 in a retirement community. And I was doing 25 minutes. And I just thought I was so gun-shy on doing any of the gay jokes. I just did 25 of of just my generic jokes and, you know, about my pets or about, you know, just relationships in general and all this other stuff that's still personal, but it just doesn't mention I'm gay. Right. And they had a blast and they had a good time, but it's weird because I do occasionally get, uh, I don't know, a trigger shy on, because that's the thing about uh, some of my straight comic friends have learned over the years and, and how writing I think is easier for them because, I could be doing a set just like anybody guy that looks just like me doing a set. And then if I mention without any prefacing or anything, my husband, the audience is immediately taken out of it. They're starting to think now they're wondering, I don't know what a reaction is going to be because when I walked up, they may not know I'm gay. So now they know, do they have a problem with that? And so it's a weird, like when I write a set, I have to figure out how do I preface this? How do I break them into it? How do I get them on board? And now I can talk about my husband in relationship with no problem without it being an issue. Whereas I think for the most part, straight comics can just go up and just say, my wife does this. And the audience is going to be like, yeah, it makes sense. I hear that every day. Right. Um, it, it, it almost makes you a better comic and a writer because you have to kind of go into it saying, all right, I'm going to have two sets in my brain. Like with the regular straight comic gets up, he can do that set in Florida, San Francisco, Chicago. But when you are a gay comic and a lot of your material is, is your lifestyle, you have to have two sets to go into that. So I think that actually makes you a better writer. It's definitely helped on sharpening my, uh, my writing skills and, and kind of, you know, really thinking about when I write about a joke, Okay, so I'm going to talk about, you know, the gay community and how I don't fit into it. But how do I ease any audience I'm in front of into that? And that's how I've learned kind of a smart, smarter writing on some of that on, okay, if I say this, then I can say this, and then, you know, it's a laugh, it's a laugh, it's a laugh, and then it's a reveal, but it's a good laugh on that. And it's been, um, in fact, I'll tell you on almost every audience right now, uh, a joke that's getting a lot of laughs it's just i get to the end of it on i you know tell them i'm gay and i point out one of the reasons i tell them that is now that they know i'm gay if they're not laughing at my jokes that's a hate crime <laughs> and it on every audience that i've learned has eased the audience because they're like okay well we can laugh at that we can laugh at this we can you know and then it becomes it kind of uh let them be okay to laugh at things now. So it's like, it gets them on board. You you give them the okay to say, all right, I'm going to pick on some gay people or I'm going to pick on myself. And it's okay to laugh because I'm laughing too. Yes, absolutely. Have you have you ever been heckled um, regarding you get up there, you're, you're telling some jokes about, oh, my husband or I'm gay. You have this great joke about um, that you're homophobic, homophobic, which yeah. I think is genius. Yeah. Have you ever been heckled? Real quick, sadly, I have to give my Jane Wagner credit on that joke because uh, that was my husband, Bob, when he was giving me a list of stuff to do around the house. And he was like, 
oh my god, I'm making you homophobic. And I was like, well, there's a joke. Thank you. That's done. Um, but uh, I, yes and no. Uh, the worst heckle I got was when I was still early on, I did a, a talent show at uh, the Gay Softball World Series that I was playing at in uh, Dallas. I was playing in the Rose Room in Dallas, which sounds nice, but um, people were there for like drag queens and live singers and could care less about a comic. And I was, it was still new and I was doing a little bit more gotcha comedy, a little bit more offensive stuff. And uh, some guy just screamed from the audience, F you, um, and you suck. And I was like, so this is going great. It was like one minute into my set. Oh. Uh, but I was like, I'm going gonna, gonna to hang out for the full five minutes. I'm going to do it. And, uh, yeah, so I've had that, uh, they just hated me and my set. So that was not necessarily about me being gay because they were gay. It was a thing on pink front. They just hated me personally. Um, <laughs> it, felt. it had nothing to do with that. You like dick. No. It had to do with the fact that they didn't think you were funny. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's weird. I, I don't really get, I haven't really been half older and I've, I've been able to do rooms well enough that nobody has said anything about me being gay. I did recently, after doing a lot of gay jokes on stage, made fun of gingers at an Irish bar, and they got <laughs> real tight about that. And uh, I remember saying on stage that, uh, oh, this is why you guys are going to lynch me, because of the ginger comment, not the gay stuff I've said for 30 minutes, but that's interesting. Way to be progressive. Um <laughs> But yeah, it's been, I have to say, I've been fairly, I don't know, fortunate, if you will, or or maybe it's just smart with my writing if I want to be less than humble about it. But I luckily and happily have not had any truly negative onstage kind of incidents. I will say some people, when I've had great sets when they're leaving, shake every other comic fan's butt mine. And I feel... Now, I can't prove one way or another. They've never walked by and called me back while they were leaving or anything. But I do have that feeling of like, I I think I know why my hand's not being shaken. And, you know, I got a lot of laughs that set, but for some reason you're going to shake everybody else's hand. So that happens occasionally, but it's never, there's not an overtness or anything like that I've had to deal with. How does, so when that happens, do you leave frustrated or do you leave like, I had a good set and I'm not going to worry about that? not going to worry about them not shaking my hand. Yeah, I leave with, I had a good set. I don't worry about it. Um, the other comics that I'm standing next to on the, you know, the procession line out, um, inevitably, if they didn't notice it when I pointed out there, you know, we kind of laugh about it because it's not as possibly insulting as it may meant to be. It's more of a ridiculous, like, that's how they, that's their gotcha, Jeff, is I'm not going to shake his hand. It's, they don't pay the bill for me, so it's fine, you know? Right. They're not paying you out of their own. Well, they kind of are. But, you know, yeah, I, I like the idea that you don't let it bring you down. Like, I'd be more upset if they didn't laugh. I don't give a fuck if you shake my hand. Yeah, I don't care if you like me. Do you think I'm funny? Right. That's, fine. That's all I care about. Like, you can personally <laughs> think I'm going to hell. But if you're cracking up the whole time, I'm fine. Exactly. I agree with that. I was in, um, you know, I did stand up only in the Bay Area. I started in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, different Bay Area than yours. Um, so, right. you know, very liberal crowds, very open-minded, but also dangerous to tell jokes because they're so woke that they're offended by everything. So 
it's a little different than a conservative crowd. But I remember one night I was doing stand up. I did two uh, open mics and my sister-in-law was with me and it was like 12 o'clock, 1230 at night. And the dude kept saying, all right, we're going to bring this guy up in a minute. We're going to bring Joe Thomas up. And he kept making me wait and wait. Then finally goes, all right, we're going to get him up here. He's been sitting there with his girl all night. My sister-in-law, he's been sitting there with his girlfriend all night. So I get up there and I grab the mic. I'm like, I'm a homosexual. I'm like, don't assume. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, I totally bombed because there was like two and a half people there. Right. And um, it was terrible. It was like one o'clock in the morning. But I've always wondered, like, could I do stand up in a more like, could I go to North Carolina and go do stand up and start telling because I'm very inappropriate. So I admire somebody like yourself who can go from, you know, doing a 90 year old birthday party to doing a gay P town open mic. Well, and, and that's kind of, and it, it is a weird thing though, that you mentioned kind of the difference in audiences, because I think for the majority, I mean, just because you know, majority of clubs and so on, 90% of the people, maybe 70% of the people in all honesty, I perform for are straight. So I write with that kind of thought process and you know, I take some liberty with like making up words that the gay community uses that are just completely made up because it makes the joke funny type thing. Mm -hmm. And then I've done an all gay audience a couple times. And early on, I'm doing that same set. And then in my head, I'm having to change really quickly because I'm thinking this joke doesn't work the same because they know that's a made up word. They're in the, they're in the community. I can't pretend like this is something the community says because they know for a fact we don't. So it's funny when I've performed for kind of a majority of gay audience, I'm quickly having to change my jokes in my head on the fly mm -hmm. because they're written in such a way that it's for somebody that doesn't know the community to explain the community. And then I'm like, when I'm already talking to the community, I was like, oh, well, this doesn't work the same. And I realized that the first time I did it, I didn't think it out until I was on stage. And I was like, oh, this is weird. Let me quick think on some of these and get my way out of them. And well, it works that muscle too, um, because you have to be quick when you do stand up. Because if somebody starts heckling you, you need to jump in. You you know that is actually material. You could actually use heckle. Now I'm not telling people to heckle Jeff at his shows. Good lord, you got. <laughs> but I mean, it does help you with that writing and thinking on the fly uh, when you're on stage. Oh, absolutely, and I um. I've been fortunate enough because I love writing so much at this point. I've done three or four roast battles, um, which is, you know, other comics against each comic and you're just writing insults about each other. And then you go through little brackets to see who wins. And I think I'm currently like nine and three oh. against other comics and roast battles. Um, so for me, when, when the rare heckle happens, I'm like, Oh, well, this is going to be fun. Um, because my persona on stage is a fairly nice guy, but my uh, my real me is uh, quite a shady character. So uh, if you <laughs> if you peek open if you peek behind that curtain to make a heckle, I'm like, well, here comes the here comes the fun real Jeff, which loves to be shady and mean. So here you go, sir, ma'am. And then uh, and I get to do that, which is which is kind of a fun. And the crowd typically loves somebody being put in their place. That's a uh, you know, they're, they're kind of sadists with that. They love seeing that again, not, not telling people to heckle. Uh, 
Yeah, don't heckle. Don't do it. Um, now, when you're roasting these com um, comedians, do you know them? Do you do some research on them? Or do you just look at them and say, all right, I'm going to I'm just going to wing it? Uh, no, I, I always tend to do research uh, on kind of the first person. I'm definitely badly. I'll do research. And I like doing the same thing you do for your podcast. I like doing a bit of a deep dive. Mm. Um, have they had... Um, a candle business fail that they were trying to run on their own um, with Chet curse words on candles that they were selling. Yes. Well, that's going to be a joke I'm going to make now. Um, you know, have they written a blog once upon a day, once upon a time to uh, Lincoln Park and it's a love letter to Lincoln Park. Well, I found that that's going to be something. And that's why I love doing, having a joke that's really a deep dive on somebody. So it's such a more personal cut than just this person's fat. Well, everybody can see they're fat, but what you don't know is they're also very sad because they wrote a love letter blog to Lincoln Park. So that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's kind of the jokes I love to find and bring to Rose Battles if I can. So if I had the time to do the research, that's, that's the best part. And people love that. I know that um, anyone who is on the podcast I'll say, oh, so I was, I'll ask some questions. I'll be like, wow, you really got in there. And I was like, oh, honey, I got all the way in there. I got deep in there. Um, so are you, are you dirty on stage? Are you clean on stage? Do you just perform for the crowd? Uh, primarily, I try to work clean on stage. I try not to curse on stage. I try to kind of take a book out of um, Jerry Seinfeld that if the joke works with a curse word, it can work without it. It just mm. takes better writing. So me personally, I write with that thought process on stage. Me as a person in my life, I curse. Okay. So when I'm doing a bar show or something like that, I'm less concerned about kind of what I'm saying. And a few F-bombs will drop out and I'll, you know, I'll curse a little bit. But that's just because that's me as a person talking. Um, but in general, my jokes are written without any curse words in them. And my material, it, I mean, there's one joke where I compare Coke and Pepsi people um, that is like mentions the idea of a blowjob. But outside of that, I don't really talk about craft stuff anymore. I did when I started. Everybody, I think, when they start. So that was weird. The call went out and um, I had to call you back, Jeff. So I apologize for that. Yeah, well, I was talking about how I'm not dirty on stage and then you hung up on me. So <laughs> well, I get I, it. Uh, well, listen, real shitty. I'll, I, I'll curse more. I get it. I need I need you. To, I need some fucks in this. Wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm over here giving you zero fucks and all of a sudden you're like, not, not good enough. Jeff. I was like, bye. <laughs> Is he not going to talk dirty? Click. <laughs> but that's so funny. yeah, I was just mentioning that. That Oh yeah, on stage, I, I've written my jokes. So because I want to work, um, I'd love to be a full-time stand-up comic. That I've found the cleaner you are and the more material you can do about that's more relatable to everybody, the more places will book you. And uh, bookings equal money. Money equals me working more. And I like all of those things. 
Have you done college, um, any college shows or business shows like for business people, corporate? By the time this comes out, maybe. Uh, oh. Funny enough, uh, literally tomorrow, I'm doing a showcase in Orlando for uh, the smaller college circuit, oh. uh, where I'm going to do a 10-minute showcase trying to sell myself to like 150, 200 colleges to try to get them to book me. Um, so I have not, and I am very curious how my material will work for colleges, because like you were talking about, the woke audiences in San Francisco, uh, that is very much my understanding of college audiences is that they're very woke. They can be easily offended. So I am curious how I'll work for them. But that being said, the guy that put me on the showcase saw me do a set, loves my point of view as a gay man who's possibly not great at being gay. Um, to all your listeners, I'm very good at it, but just <laughs> the generality of it. Um, but just that, so knowing that that's why I'm put on the showcase, I'm really leaning into that on my set and seeing what happens from there. I get mad at people who get, I shouldn't say mad. I get frustrated with people who get offended easily and then not only get offended, but try to stop you from saying what you're going to say. I did, um, back in August of 2016, I did this, um, DC, there was, there's like a gay book event in Washington, DC. And I went there and I read my book and I read this, I read from this chapter about this heavy set woman who spills tomato juice on in her crotch. And she asks me to wipe it off her. Right. So well, yeah. Well, fast forward to like two years later, I say, Hey, I want to come back. They're like, there were some people you can come back, but we're going to have to, you're going to have to clean it up a little because some people were offended that you were fat shaming. And I was like, I'm fat. So I don't understand. <laughs> like, do I have to do this with my shirt off? Like what? Like, do you have to see my titties to say, Oh, okay. He's talking about his people. But what really upset me about that event was we were going like after I did my reading, I went around to another room and there was this room where they were reading stories, fiction stories. And this mm -hmm. woman, this one woman stood up and she's like, all right, I'm going to do this reading. Um, it's a story about a girl being raped. Is there anyone in the room who doesn't want to hear it? And there were probably like 50 people in the room. One chick raises right. her hand and I'm like, no, I want to hear it because this is reality. Yeah. This happens, you know, yeah. I want to hear what you have to say. This one bitch raises her fucking hand and she says, I'm sorry, I can't hear about rape. Could you read something else? So the woman's like, absolutely, I'll go, ahead. I'll go ahead. And she reads something else. I was so mad and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why didn't that, why didn't you say, oh, okay, well, I'm about to read a story about rape. So you should probably leave because these other 49 yeah. people don't care. If one person doesn't want to hear it, that person, mind you, shouldn't have to hear it, but leave the room. Right, leave the room. You know, and this woman, the 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 woman who was reading from the book, actually said, "Like, I'm going to read this story." If and I was thinking, "Oh, she's giving everybody a warning. Like, if you don't want to hear this, get out." No, no, she's yeah. like, "All right, I will adjust for you," and that really upset me. And I think Ugh. that's the fear I would have. Um, going to do comedy shows. So I think, I think you're very brave and I can't wait to hear about how this happens. I am going to follow up with you on that. Yeah. I'm very curious how it's going to go. And then I'll shoot you. I'll know by tomorrow afternoon. I'll shoot you a test and let you know. Um, but it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, the, the fat shaming and I'll tell you 
uh, a bit of information that was given to me that I never thought about because I, while I was working out my fit or fat joke and my beard joke and all of those things about my own body, which again, I have a bit of a gut and they Google me, they'll see it. Um, I do have a gut and I get it. And so I talk about it. I'm not in shape. And then I um, was starting to work on this joke with a couple other uh, comics. There's a bit of a writer's room and we work on, you know, some premises together and they help guide. And one of my friends who's a, who's a great headliner comic who's worked all over was looked at me. He goes, you can't do that joke, Jeff. And I was like, what are you talking about? Um, it's about my body and my gut. And he goes, you're not fat enough. Because the problem is you're a handsome man and you're not fat enough. You're not fat enough to do fat jokes uh, on stage because you're going to do a fat joke and then actual fat people will be in the audience going, he's not fat. And they're, they will hate you. They'll take it right out. So that's the same thing I guarantee that happened to you because you're not fat. You're not fat, fat. Um, or regular fat. I don't know why I had uh, the second one in there. That got really rude. Um, oh, you can be as rude as you want. It's okay. <laughs> just that, but that's kind of the reality that we deal with, that I think we're similar body types. We're, we're not the fit people. But at the same time, um, we're not fat people as much as we think where we're at. That, so when we make a fat joke, actual fat people, who, by the way, are supposed to be jolly, get all upset about it because we're not their fat. Well, I think everybody gets upset if, well, here's the thing. People take everything personally. They can't just sit up there and say, oh, "Oh, he's not talking about me. Yeah, I'm chubby. I'm husky. I have a friend who says I'm husky, which I'm like, all right, I'll take it. It's like those fat pencils from the 80s and the 70s. I'm like, all right, I'll take it. I'm husky. I'll take it. Um, But that actually makes sense because, you know, I'm not obese, even though my doctor writes that down every time I go for my physical, I'm like, you don't have to write that. You don't have to write obese, but, um, but that actually makes sense. Cause if you really are somebody who struggles with your weight and you need a wheelchair to get on the airplane and a seatbelt extension, you don't want to hear somebody who may be 20 pounds overweight saying I'm fat. Yeah, it is one of those, if I do a joke about me being fat, and the next comic comes up, there's a 350-pound guy right behind me, and he's like, this bitch. Um, <laughs> he probably like, uses oh. you as material. He does, and he, you know, they kind of, so at the same time, I was like, oh, well, and if I go after somebody that has talked about them being fat, and they're, you know, 300 plus, and then I go up and I'm thinking, well, if I do jokes about me being out of shape, how little does that work compared to what? So then it's, it's just made me rewrite them a little bit to make it more personal as I feel like I'm this as opposed to I'm a fat guy. Um, so it's, that's how it's just working it smarter. But at the same time, I realized that like I can't call myself fat after, after an actual fat person hover rounds on the stage like that. That's not fair. Is it even okay to call say somebody's a fat person anymore? I don't even know. I'm so out of the loop, but I get it because I just had this aha moment because, you know, I follow some of the flight attendants I work with on social media and they're probably like, I don't know, 87 pounds and right. you can see their ribs and they're like, oh my God, I'm just going to have Tic Tacs for the rest of the week because I'm going on the Atlantis cruise. And I'm like, you skinny bitch, <laughs> I'll use you as a speed bump. Like, so I get it. If, somebody, right. if somebody's bigger than me and I'm up there and I'm like, because one of the first jokes I ever told was about my man boobs. And I would get, you know, because 
it was, I was so embarrassed by them. I was like, how do you take ownership of something? You just grab it by the balls. Well, I just grabbed it by the man boobs on stage. And uh, everybody loved it. But I totally understand what you're saying about being careful with the fat jokes because we're really not quote unquote fat. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not worried about offending people. I just need to make sure people laugh at them. And if I find out that they're not laughing because they don't find me fat, I have the option of either rewriting it or gaining more weight. So <laughs> Don't gain more weight. Oh, my God. Well, listen, I'm going to see which one works. What if you were such a lazy writer? You were like, fuck, I either have to gain weight or rewrite these jokes. I'm just going to eat more Oreos because I can't go through all that shit again. That sounds like an amazing, that's my new philosophy in life. Yes. Just start eating more. And they're like, why did, why did you gain weight? Well, I didn't want to write new jokes. Do you know how hard this shit is? I didn't want to write new jokes. No. <laughs> well. Tell me I'm not fat enough for a fat joke. Challenge accepted. Exactly. <laughs> I love Oreos, but I can't gain any more weight. I'm tired of seeing obese <laughs> written on my doctor's note. <laughs> you should just. Get a different doctor. Well, um, every one of them says it. I'm like, all right. They're like, you know, you're. I'm like, don't say it. I have diabetes. No, I'm fat. I'm obese. I get it. Um, speaking of fit and fat, I'm going to play another clip. You like welcomed me right into this. You're like such a professional. I'm going to play a clip from your stand up and um, I want to talk about it for a minute. Hold on. Sure. Because I get it. I know what I look like. I have a mirror in my house. I see what's happening here. I'm at that like intersection of fit and fat, you know what I'm talking about? Like I'm not like technically the shirt fits. But if I were to get arrested tonight or go on a roller coaster, everybody sees the fat. What um if anybody watches this on YouTube, which you should definitely check out. Um, that Jeff is funny on YouTube. You raise your hand and then your tiny, tiny little belly pops out. And I was just like, oh, this bitch. Um, oh, see, fat people attacking me again. I'm, um, I'm going to have people attacking you. Do you find self-deprecating um, comedy easy to do? Um, I find it easy to do because it's real, but it's still, I think it still has to take smart writing on it because you don't ever want somebody feeling sad for you. If I try a joke and people at the end of it go, aw, instead of laughing, that's not the reaction I want. I don't want people feeling actually bad for me. I want them saying, oh, I can relate to that and me too. Um, well, maybe not that. Um, but I, because that's actually the, the whole arms up thing is something very rudely, my husband, who by the way is a chunky guy, uh, a handsome stocky man, but he constantly, when I'm about to wear a shirt out or something, and he's like, raise your hands. And if I raise my hands and it goes up to like my belly button, he's like, does that shirt really fit? I'm like, well, it does if I don't get excited. <laughs> so, <laughs> if I'm not getting arrested, it's fine. Yes. Yeah. So it's very much become a standard of when we leave the house. We kind of put up, like, how happy can we get today? How, how, how high up can the arms go? And it's become a parameter of like, what we can wear out of the house. So unfortunately, that's a that's a very real place um, that joke comes from. But the self-deprecation, yeah, I think, I mean, everybody, everybody kind of feels a certain way about themselves. And if you can laugh at it, maybe you don't feel that way as much. But there's always a line. I have friends who do, um, two different friends, I've had to tell them the same advice. They do 
some depression jokes and then they do some suicide jokes, which are extremely well written and they do it very well. And they come from a place of them personally. That being said, I've told them suicide jokes can be funny until the audience actually thinks you're going to do it. Like you can't do four in a row because mm-hmm. then on the fourth one, the audience like maybe we should be calling somebody as opposed to laughing. And that's that you have to find that balance of what is true to you. What is you're not laughing at somebody. You're laughing at yourself, but you're bringing people along and they don't need to call somebody on you because they're like, well, this guy actually needs help. He's a sad clown on stage. Right. He's up there. He's up there asking for help, masking it with doing stand up comedy. Right. So you need to find that balance where they're still on board, but not calling a helpline. And that that balance that I think self-deprecation can be hilarious when done right. I have this theory that um, people that have fucked up childhoods tend to get into comedy. And so you, you just brought up somebody who tells suicide jokes. Um, you know, how much of it's real? How much have you thought about doing? Because I've never thought of suicide. I've never thought of committing suicide. So I don't know if I would write the jokes. So something tells me if you're writing jokes about suicide, you've probably thought about it. Well, and this and this these two comic friends of mine have, have openly talked about it and have it. That is, to me, that's a very important part of comedy. I was in that writer's room that I told you before, and a, uh, a comic was, and I think we as comics find a way to work through our lives on stage, basically. And a comic was writing about him being molested as a child. And he was writing this joke that was touching and funny and very interesting and an interesting point of view. To a point that we had to ask the question, listen, the joke's fine, but has this happened to you? Because if it hasn't, you cannot do that joke on stage. Right. But he's like, no, this is about my life. And we were like, well, then that is something you can attempt on stage. But if, if it hasn't, if something's those type things, in my opinion, I think you can laugh about anything. You can joke about anything. But if you're making the joke about it, it should be personal to you. If you're making a joke about suicide. And you've been through that, and this is your way of working through it. If you're making a joke about kind of um, being molested as a child, then you've been through it, and you're working through it, and you're bringing your pain on stage in a in a way that people can relate to. That's important that you have that connection to it, because if I'm doing those jokes and I and I'm not in that state, it's almost like I'm laughing at it and mocking it, and that's a very different feel. That that actually makes sense. You know, I um I I was molested for ten years of my childhood. I don't, I've never really told jokes about it on stage. I've thought about it. You know, I love a good Woody Allen joke. I love a good Pope joke. I love Catholic jokes um, regarding priests. But I agree with you. If it hasn't happened to you, you can't really joke about it because it seems like you're picking on that situation. Like, right. Like, yeah, like you can't get up there and be like, oh, suicide, people, you know, unless you actually understand it. And I think, and that's one of those, and that's why their jokes work. And, you know, my only concern for them was just don't do four jokes in a row, because then then an audience is going to be concerned. They're going to be calling 911. You know, don't, don't cry for help. Well, yeah, don't cry for help on stage. That's what I have a podcast for. (laughs) I probably have people (laughs) calling everyone like, this guy's crazy. So going back to childhood, 
did your childhood sure. has it did it prepare for you for comedy do you talk about your childhood at all or was your childhood just perfect and wonderful i mean it wasn't perfect and wonderful it 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 prepared me in, in different ways i don't talk about my childhood on stage yet um just because i i haven't written much about it but uh i touched base on my parents and so on and that type of thing and a little bit about my childhood but um, what my childhood did was my parents were avid, avid uh, stand-up comedy fans. Okay. Uh, so, like, my parents loved George Carlin and let me watch George Carlin. My mom loved Richard Pryor and would tell the stories about Richard Pryor, so I got to watch Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy's Raw. You know, as a kid, oh, yeah. possibly shouldn't be watching these things, but they really understood that comedy is comedy, and I got to watch comedy with the sense that this is, comedy we can laugh about these things so it was it was great growing up with that and then um i'll tell you my i just actually told this story to my dad recently which he for the first time heard when i decided to switch to comedy um i used to be uh, a bit of a, a fight first type person in my life um it was i needed no reason to fight somebody and i didn't have a, a there was no angst in my life i just enjoyed fighting so if somebody said something wrong, I was like, well, funny. Um, and that led to a lot of suspensions and uh, in school suspensions and my parents filling out uh, admission to a military school if I got into one more suspension for fighting and all of this stuff. And so after they threatened me with military school, I went to the bus stop the next day and somebody at the bus stop tried to start a fight with me. And in my head, I remember distinctly this day, it was middle school and me going, I can't fight this person because... I will go to military school. So that mm, can't happen. Right. So I was avoiding the fighting, kind of dodging a punch here or there. And then I started making fun of him. And that seemed to hurt and hit more than any of the fighting ever did. And all the other kids were laughing. And it was in that moment, I remember the switch in my head going, oh, you can do this to people? Oh, words can do this? And that's when how I looked at life and how I kind of dealt with things changed in that click because I realized I could be witty or I could be shady or I could read somebody um, or roast somebody and that can do more damage um, than fighting them and I don't get suspended as much so that's when kind of my life changed in middle school on me deciding to be the funny person and be do more with comedy kind of from then on but it was because I needed to stop fighting. And I was like, okay, well, instead of fighting, I could be rude. Um, so that person unleashed it on everybody. You cut bitches with your words. That's what you did. Yeah, and I learned that you could do that and, and at an early age. And I was like, well, that is amazing. Good to know. And is that when you found... I'm sorry, I'm sucking on a cough drop. I have a little bit of a sore throat. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to say sucking on something while I was talking to you. Um, so at that, Finally. Finally, it only took 45 minutes. Um, and a hang up, by the way. So you, you're, in middle, <laughs> you're in middle school. You find, oh, I'm funny by, you know, I'm defending myself with my words. Does that, is that kind of spark you in your brain like one day i'm gonna get up on stage or do you think oh this is just my defense mechanism right now i think it was more defense mechanism right then and i i was already getting on stage and and hosting things and at uh the local church i went to i was reading 
the scripture. They'd always have me up as the reader because I had good stage presence. And I was, and I, I emceed my brother's Eagle ceremony with Boy Scouts. And then I did such a good job. I got booked for two others because that's a thing. And so that kind of always led to, I was very comfortable on stage hosting events. And um, that was just, just me being an outgoing person in life. And in my head, I was a bit quick-witted so I could have fun on stage. But insofar as I wrote myself out of doing comedy for years upon years, uh, because I thought comedy is a lot of writing. And I don't know that I have the chops to be a writer for comedy. Because you can't just go up and talk. You have to have these jokes written out. You, they make it look easy, but I know the writing that went into it. Mm-hmm. And that's what terrified me. And then the irony is, by the time I start comedy, which I had talked myself out of three times before I was forced into it, um, that I realized that possibly writing is one of the better things I do. And I, I felt other comic jokes, and I'm always kind of working on jokes and writing and writing with other people and enjoying that, that um, I was like, it's, it's the chicken and egg. I don't know if I would have been this good of a writer, joke teller, if I started when I was 18, 19 and I want to do the first time, or if the life experience is why I'm such a good writer and joke teller now. Does that make sense? Like it's, it's, it's hard to say, was this always there or did skipping it for so long and starting so late help me be kind of where I'm at right now? Oh, I definitely believe that with age makes it easier to do like, I, I published my first book when I was 43, right? Something like that, 43. I could have never written a book when so I was 22. Negative five years ago? Yeah, um, it came out, and my first one came out in 2016. So I guess it was, what, three and a half years ago, and I'm 47, so i bad in math. 43-ish, yeah. So um, You look so much younger than 47. So I know I'm interjecting on your story, but I'm trying to give you a compliment. You look so much younger. You're just trying to get me to take my pants off, and it's working. <laughs> I don't know if it's just the beard or the fact that fat doesn't crack, but it's working for you. And... <laughs> Did you say fat doesn't crack or black doesn't crack? Because they both can. I said fat. They both work for me. They both don't crack. I, I'm a black woman <laughs> inside, so I totally get it. Um, no, you know what I think helps? I, I've never smoked a cigarette in my entire life. No, me neither. And I think that that helps how you look. My mom passed away when she was 56. She smoked like two packs a day from when she was like 13 till she died. And she, when she died, she looked like she was like 80. So I do believe that what has made me look so young and beautiful as I am (laughs) is because (laughs) I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, but thank you very much. Um, it's probably the beard too. Cause when I shave the beard off, I look horrific, but yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't even remember what I was talking about regarding my book because I'm old, even though I look young. <laughs> what was I talking about? Regarding- you were saying that when you, when you wrote your first book, you don't know that you would have been able to write oh, that when yes. you were in your 20s. So when I, yeah. So when I published my first book, I don't think I could have written that book when I was 22. Even though I always said I wanted to be a writer when I was young, I was like, I want to write, I want to write. I don't think I was mentally capable of getting the work done. And I think that came with age. And I think I agree with that. I think that, well, A, the uh, 
kind of the the wherewithal to be able to stay on topic and be able to do things and have the attention span to get it done has definitely come with age. It's just, I can tell you, I mean, as a stand-up comic, when I started, so I started what, five and a half years ago, so I was 34, 33 when I started. I am watching people in their 20s, you know, be at the same point I am, and I hate them with a passion because of their life they have ahead of them and optimism. Mm. And I just think, you know, it's that it's again, I, I, I definitely can't complain on where I'm at, but at the same time, I think, well, I wish I had done it earlier, less responsibility, all of this, but I wouldn't have had all the same jokes. I wouldn't have had homophobia as the joke with, cause I wouldn't have been in the relationship with Bob at that time and all of this. So it is that I definitely, I think, you know, things happen at the right spot at the right time when they should happen. So I just have to accept that. And, and, uh, know that although I am uh, a geezer in the age of starting comedy, um, it's a good thing. Well, and how old are you again? 39. Oh my God, you're such a baby. Much younger than you, yes. I, well, still. there's no need to stab me while I'm feeling good about myself. <laughs> um, it's a real roller coaster with me. Oh my God, I, one minute I'm ready to take my pants off, the next minute I'm ready to hang up again. It's crazy. <laughs> But, you know, I, that's why I gave up um, doing stand-up at open mic nights and stuff like that because I found myself sitting at a train station because I missed the train in San Francisco one night, and I was like, I'm too old for this shit. I should be home in bed. I'm 45 <laughs> years old. Why am I at a train station at 1 o'clock in the morning? Because I wanted to tell jokes for five minutes. Uh I was at a bar last night at midnight getting up to do jokes about an hour away from my house. And I just thought, and the bar was not listening. They were not listening to any, it was mixed open mics. There were musicians playing. And I just thought, what am I doing here? What, oh, you why, have that thought. Yeah. This year, what am I doing? And so, but it is, you know, to me, I wanted to run my 10 minute set one more time before I do it tomorrow night. So that was, that was the thought. I said, I don't care if they're listening. I'm just making sure the way that I've arranged this set works in my head. And so I just was going to go. But it is one of those, it's midnight and I'm starting, What you know, this is crazy. I'm too old for this. <laughs> I'm too old for this. But, you know, I always find people who are in comedy, who are creative, who write, like, we have such great work ethic. Like, you were out till midnight, you're, you're 39. I mean, there's probably, there are probably other comedians are much younger than you. And here you are up in the morning doing a podcast and it's because you love it. Like if you worked at Seven Eleven, you probably wouldn't be this devoted. It's true. It is very true. Right. Like I have to throw myself into the airport to go to work as a flight attendant, but Hey, do you want to film? Do you want to record a podcast? I'm, I'm hitting the button right now. It's, <laughs> Yeah, and I'm not lying when I say my husband has to literally throw me out. It's like I'm st I'm in kindergarten and I'm tr trying to get me to go to school for the first day. Like you've been doing this 12 years, go to work, and I'm like, but the airport's scary. I just picture you doing just the whole dead weight thing. Oh yeah, collapsing yeah. on the ground. No. Oh my God. 12 years ago, when I first started, when we lived in Orlando and I first became a flight attendant, he would pull up to the, he would pull up to the gate. He would pull up to the terminal and I'd be like, you might as well just go back home. I'm going to take a sick call. I can't do this. And he would be like, what is wrong with you? But I hated going to school too. It's, it's, um, 
it's a, I don't know what the fear is, but I, I, my mom would have to fight me almost physically to go to school. And I had to, you know, I was a nurse for 12 years. And if I, if there was one aspect of it that I did not like of the job, I would create this entire story of why I didn't need to go. Well, that's why you're quite the storyteller. So you started early. I did. Well, no. Well, 12 years, 12 years ago. Yeah. Because I was like, I used to do theater. And when I became a flight attendant, I had to stop because theater is my first love. It, I just, I love acting and I love theater. I love the instant gratification. You understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I became a flight attendant. I was like, oh, I can't do theater anymore because I'm gone for weeks at a time. What should I do? And my husband's like, well, you have to express yourself somehow. Why don't you start a blog? And I was like, oh, all right. And and that's basically, he gave me the, he gave me the fuel to where we are today, where I'm, um, have you on my podcast. So thank you, honey. <laughs> well, and I love that. I think that, so it's so funny. And I think you're going to relate to this uh, wholeheartedly from what I hear there is the fact that like, I will get occasionally people ask me because my husband, Bob doesn't come out to my shows a lot. Uh, he's heard the jokes and usually I'm doing shows with friends of mine. He's heard their jokes. Does he really need to be there? But um, people that are starting in comedy, their significant others are there with them at every show, all the time, super supportive. And um, what I always tell people is, like, he's supportive in the best way. He's supportive in, if I go do a show and then I drop at a club afterwards to say hi to some of my friends that are working that club, and there's an A-list comic hanging out there, and then I hang out with my friends in that comic and the club owner till 4 a.m., and then I get home. He's never, why the hell are you home so late? He's, how did the networking go? Like, he is supportive in the sense that it's never guilt on, I have to drive two hours to go do this, or I have to fly to go do this. It's a, well, that makes sense. That's what you have to do. I get it. That's the profession. You need to network. You need to hang out. You need to smooth. You need to do all of this. So it's, it's, a, it's a great having a support system and a husband that is one of those, like, you have a creative outlet. I know that you have that. Why don't you do a blog to get your creative outlet out? That's what, that would be the best for you. Um, you know, that's that type of support that I think we as creative people really need in our lives. I don't need somebody who's going to be at every show. I need somebody who's not going to give me shit for going to every show. Like that's, the best part. And that's what he does amazingly. And it sounds like you have that at home too. Yes. Um, yeah. My husband, Matt, he supports me in all of my endeavors and he's my, I'm always, uh, my goal is to make him laugh. I know if I, cause our comedy, what we find funny is completely different a lot of the times. Um, and he like, we'll watch the TV show Veep and he'll be laughing hysterically. And I'll say, when I say something like that, you're like, do you have to talk like that? Um, and I learned that, you know, he has this different, like, why do you have to talk like that? You don't have to be that dirty. Um, and, but he's so supportive. And when I um, started this podcast, I didn't know how it was going to go. And I was like, God, I wonder, I hope he's going to like it. Do you think he's going to like it? And he's like, oh my God, each episode gets better. And I'm like, oh, and so I understand. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, that support is funny. That support is so important. What's funny is when I used to do stand up, I would go over jokes with him in the living room and he would look like I just stabbed one of the cats. He would just stare at me (laughs) 
like, don't ever say that outside. Right. And I'd be like, is it funny? He'd be like, it's okay. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to take your advice because we have, you're not a stand, you don't write comedy. So you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but then we would go to, a, I, he would come to my shows cause he would always come. I think he only missed like two or three, um, open mics that I did. And, um, okay, nice. yeah. And then I would hear him rolling, laughing in the audience. So we would get in the car and he'd be like, Oh my God, that was hilarious. And I would say, you didn't laugh at home. Well, it's in a, it's in a different environment and you're on more, you know, because you have this crowd of people that you're playing for. You're not just playing for me and the cats in the living room. Yeah. That's always one of those things when people say, and you know, I'm sure you've heard this in your life and it is one of those, when uh, somebody comes up to me and they're like, Oh, you're a comic. Tell me a joke. Oh. I'm like, well, I do observational comedy, so if I just tell you one of those jokes right now, there's no way it reads the same as if you're in that energy of a live audience on with me on stage, which automatically gives me, you know, kind of an authoritarian. You know, you're you're listening to me more, and all of those things are missing if I'm just standing in a park next to you. Tell me a joke. Well, that's not the same thing, like, uh, and it's never going to hit the same, and it's never going to feel the same. So you're right; it is one of those. It's very different just telling somebody the joke to performing it on stage. It's just a better, it's night and day different. I, I, I totally agree. And I hate when somebody does that. I hate when they say, oh, oh, you're, oh, you're a comedian. Tell a joke. I'm like, oh, you work at Starbucks. Can you make me a latte while we're standing in the fucking bar? Like, I hate that. But now I just tell them. Well, I've written three books. They're the ebooks four ninety nine each. It's very cheap. You could laugh at me all fucking day. <laughs> like, like jokes aren't free anymore. That that's the best way about it. That's that's the smart way. Jokes aren't free anymore. Like, but back in the day, because you said something earlier in the episode, you said I don't care if you like me. I just want you to find me funny. Do you do you live like do you live by that today still, or is that? Is that how you are in general, or is that just for your stand-up? I will tell you, for me, being respected is better than being liked. But uh, I do believe in in kind of kindness in the community. I, I find myself to be a very, I try to be a very likable person in the comedy community for a couple reasons. One, I don't need to put people down. Um, Time will do that. And then two, <laughs> I, the I like more that. people that you're friends with, the more bookable you are, the more shows you'll be put on. And all of that, just smart business. So I try to be a nice person in general, but I'd rather them, as much as somebody's like, oh, I like Jeff and he's a nice guy and this and that. If somebody says Jeff's funny or Jeff's a really good writer, that to me means so much more to me. Um, than them liking me because that is a respect and respect to me is earned. Um, you know, you can like anybody. I like my cats. I don't respect them. Right. Oh, oh, don't let them hear that. <laughs> they also don't speak English. They I say horrible things. I, <laughs> I said, uh, well, my, uh, one of my friends that attended on our garage apartment, she's like, so you have a new puppy, but I heard you calling her fat yesterday. And I was like, also, She's a puppy and can't understand what I'm saying. Uh, I say horrible, mean things to my pets, but in a very nice voice, so they don't know it. Right, right. Because it's if you talk, sing, if you talk sing songy to them, they're like, "Oh, I love you, Daddy." So you could basically exactly. say, "If you shit on the floor again, honey, I'm going to break your back legs." 
They don't know. I've called one of my cats pre-diabetic. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's one of these things. <laughs> okay. So he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Do you live on a farm? <laughs> we have some pets. We have some animals at our house, yes. Uh, it's not an actual farm. We live in our house. sits in the middle of three lots in St. Petersburg. Uh, it's a decent-sized house. Um, so we have, and by we, I mean mainly my husband, has filled the every open space with animals. We also have raised beds, vegetable gardens. We have fruit trees. We have a pool. We have other things, but anywhere that there's not those other things, there's probably an animal, yes. So tell me, I know, I, like I said, I stalked you on Instagram, so I know you have chickens. You have dogs. We do have chickens. We get fresh eggs from the chickens. We Love have that. three dogs, okay. a Labradoodle, a standard poodle, and we just got uh, an adorable little German shepherd named Agatha, who was born December 29th. Okay. So she's very young and very dumb. <laughs> yes. <laughs> her, her favorite new trick is to sit on the couch calmly and then out of nowhere, try to bite our face. That's her favorite trick she does right now. Fun. Um, yeah, it's great. Uh, we probably shouldn't be feeding her bath salts, but we'll, you know, live and learn. We figured that out late. <laughs> yes, no bath salts. She's for fine. The then we have, we, now we know. Uh, we have four cats. Oh, my God. Uh, one of them's mainly an outdoor cat, so he just hangs out with the chickens and parol- uh, patrols the alley and comes in for dinner. Okay. So really, it's three in the house, so that's not bad. Um, we do possibly have four adult tortoises outside in a nice little tortoise pen with a little house for them. The problem is when you have four tortoises, two male, two female, do you know what tortoises love to do other than move slow and eat things? Fuck. Uh, tortoises love to fuck. Oh, my God. So much so. Yes. So we, al- <laughs> we also have five baby tortoises that we have inside the house in a little atrium. You have, uh, you have nine tortoises? We keep checking on, well, we keep checking on the tortoises and there's babies in there. You know, I don't know. How do you sell contraceptive to tortoises? They can you just get them love fixed? the and can, I mean, can you get them fixed? I don't know. I don't. I would just kick them in the nuts, but they have those shells. I don't know where they keep their nuts. I don't know anything about tortoises. Oh, my God. Um, Keep going, because I, I have a feeling there's more. There's a couple more. We may have a few turkeys <laughs> and a couple ducks. So turtles Now, cat- in our defense. Go ahead. In our defense, if you've never seen a baby duckling, they're adorable. And when you're picking out baby chicks, it's hard not to get baby duck because they're <laughs> so cute. They just come Unfortunately, together. they grow into big ducks. That are less hiss at you all the time. But whatever. I had a friend um, who used to live in St. Cloud, Florida. He lived in a small little shack in somebody's backyard, and he had geese. Geese will fucking destroy you. They used to chase me from the car into the house, and it was the most frightening year of my life. I was 22 at the time. Now, Geese are angry, yes. Who do you have geese? No, no geese, just ducks. No, 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 no. But turkeys can be mean, so that's fine. So whose idea is it? Is, is this your husband's project or 
and you go along with it or are you both equal with the I'm obsessed with having animals? Um, I'm a big cat and dog person, so it's hard for me to see a kitten and not want it. So that's partly my fault. And then we had been talking about getting a uh, baby German Shepherd for a while. And then he annoyingly, while I was at work, sent me a video of one that was available. And I broke down and I said, okay. And then he started blowing up my phone to come home and then blowing up my assistant manager's phone to send me home so he could go get his puppy. Um, and that's how we got Agatha. But it, I'm a sucker for a cute face. Right. Um, hence, I'm on the podcast. Um, <laughs> and the birds are definitely him. He wanted chickens when we lived in our his old house. So we moved into this house, which has almost a full lot of land on on either side so it's two big side yards i was like well we have the room for it we can build a chicken coop you can get some chickens and then that opened a floodgate that i had no idea what happened and uh (laughs) obviously because you wake up and you have nine i want to say turtles but they're not the same or can you say turtle no yeah they're tortoises yeah they're tortoises so um they are uh, like turtles need to be in water, I want to say, and tortoises don't. Don't throw a tortoise in the water. Oh, okay. But I, yeah. um, you know, right now where we live, we're renting because we just moved to the we just moved to Colorado in November. But eventually, we want to buy some land and build a house. And my dream, because I'm a vegetarian and I don't eat eggs from. I don't buy eggs at the grocery store. Like if you had, like if I lived next door to you, I would buy eggs from you and then I would eat them because I would feel like, well, I know these, these chickens. I know them. I know that I go across, I go over there and I chat with them. (laughs) Um, My husband's boss, he used to, he has chickens and one of them is his name. Her name is Beyonce. And I would always tell Matt, don't come home today unless you buy eggs from Beyonce. And I only want them from Beyonce. I only want Beyonce's ex. And um, (laughs) (laughs) it's hilarious. And, um, but I want to have, I want four chickens. I want to name them the, the golden girls names. I want to take care of them. I want to be their dad. And I want them to provide me with eggs for breakfast. So I understand the chickens. We do get a lot of eggs. I know on your Instagram page, um, you just posted a photo with like all these eggs. And I was like, oh, I know he didn't buy those at the grocery store because th- there's some blue ones in there and those come right yeah. out of home chickens. Yep. How, um, whose idea was it for the tortoises? Because I'm very curious about the tortoises. So he, he's, so he, when he was young, a little bit lived on a farm and then he's had different assorted animals throughout. He's, he's a big animal person too. And so, he had a tortoise. He had tortoises at our old house, and then we had them. We brought them here. And we had tortoises here, and then they passed away one day. So we were years without tortoises. Um, and we, I was down in Fort Lauderdale performing, and he came down to hang out and not go to the show mm-hmm. because why? We all went down to Fort Lauderdale together. Why would we? go to the show together um but then <laughs> that's a little dig by the way but go ahead just on just unpacking it's fine and so he uh <laughs> so at some point he was like oh there's a there's a reptile place i've gotten tortoises from before let's go there and so we we drove 40 minutes to this place that was like no public allowed and he called he's like i'm looking i wanted to see your red foot and they're like well you can come in and we went in and we got these tortoises and then i'm like we're 
in Fort Lauderdale for another day. What are we doing with them? And they lived in our bathroom in the hotel room uh, for the oh for God. that night. And then we drove them home. The ne- and then, you know, it was four hours home with tortoises in the car. So we're the only ones that have done that. So that, then since we built a pen for them and they're just out there, they're really low-key and, and fine. Uh, a friend of his, who's a very earth-savvy, hippie, nice guy, uh, needed to relocate two tortoises. And we were like, I don't think my life will change at all if you bring them here. It's fine. And so we brought the tortoises here and gave, uh, and hence we have four. And then, of course, the fucking, and now we have the babies. I'm fascinated. I didn't know there was such a tortoise situation going on in Florida. And I lived in Florida for 25. I didn't know people called and said, I have two tortoises that I have to unload. Yeah, they'll bring them over. We're good. We got a fence. We're good. Now there's nine. Well, what I have found out is once you start having an animal that people don't usually have, for instance, once we had the chickens, the amount of calls we get where it's like a realtor who's selling a house. Hey, I'm selling a house, but there's three chickens here. I'm going to drop them off in your guy's yard. Oh, sure. Um, it, it, we became this kind of haven for a little while of like, hey, here's a random animal. I'm just going to bring it over to you guys. Uh, you guys already have one of them. So here's eight more. Um, right. So What's that hurt? became a thing as well. Right. <laughs> uh, but he loves it. He takes care of it, which is fine. So that's he. He basically takes care of the tortoises and the chickens and stuff. Yeah, he, he pretty much does all of that. You have a. Um, I'm a little obsessed with one of your cats, and um, you know which one I'm going to talk about. Um, yes, our, our our newest cat. You, your your newest cat is named Taylor Swift. <laughs> so we we rescued. Um, Somebody, somebody sent a picture, a former co-worker of his, said, hey, there's these kittens that are strays that are outside that are very young. I mean, she was very young, way too young when we got her, and fit in the palm of my hand, young. And um, they were like, do you want to rescue her? And she's just this kind of very pure white, all white all over, very white cat. And when we got her, we obviously, every time you get a pet, there's the name conversation. What do we mm-hmm. name her? We're like, well, she's super white. Let's do something that's super white. <laughs> so uh, he wouldn't he wouldn't let me call her cocaine. And then we came up with multiple other names. Pumpkin Spice Latte was turned down um, until we landed on Taylor Swift. All one word. He'll insist that I say that, by the way. Um, he corrected the vet when they had it as two words. Taylor Swift, all one word, is our cat's name because we thought, that's the whitest name we could give it. That is the whitest. <laughs> now, because so, I was going to ask you, is it, do you just call her Taylor? Do you call her T-Swift? Do you call her T? But no, it's Taylor Swift, all one word. It's Taylor Swift, all one word. And God forbid you try to abbreviate at the house. Uh, you will be corrected. It's Taylor Swift, all one word. And it's because it's the whitest name you could come up with. That's hilarious. It was the whitest name we could come up with. Yep. How old is she? She is probably a year now, sounds about right. Maybe just under. But we we always have, we had a cat named Georgia who was a rescue. And um, when she was maybe, I don't know, uh, three months old or something, she got fat. And we realized that she wasn't just fat, she got pregnant. Uh, oh. She was a little whore going around town. I know, right. you want to blame the parents, but <laughs> when you're the parents, you don't want to. Um, right, right. You blame and, the- you blame the other cat's parents. 
yeah, obviously that's that's whose fault it is. So her name was Georgia. She had a litter of kids in the house, and we named them all cities from Georgia because they all came out of Georgia. Oh, okay. uh, so there was Savannah, Tyvee, all of these other names, and and to us it was just one of those. Well, they came out of Georgia. They have to be related to Georgia. So that's why naming's always uh, a weird, interesting time at this house. I love that is so smart though. Georgia had kittens and you named them all cities from Georgia. That is we did. That's very, very smart. Now, do you guys like Taylor Swift or is the name just Taylor Swift because it is the whitest name you could come up with? Uh I think it can be both. Okay. Um no, we do we do like Taylor Swift. In fact, we recently watched Miss Americana on oh, Netflix. Yeah. I watched um, that. Yeah. I uh no, uh, we're fans of Taylor Swift. It's funny because um my pledge center friend DJ was the one that said years upon years ago, he was a country music fan and he's like, you have to, well, he's showing us YouTube clips of this quick change, young country artist, um, that was doing these like, you know, glitter in the air. And then she changed dresses really quick. And it was, that was Taylor Swift way back when. Mm-hmm. So she kind of been introduced to us a while back. And then, you know, as anybody, any gay man in their forties, um, <laughs> you came up, you've watched her grow up. Right. Uh, and uh, no, I mean, I do. I, I I like her. Miss Americana was an interesting documentary. Yeah, we're we're fans of her. Oh, very good. We're yeah, fans so of her. I. It took me a long time to get on board on the Swift board train. Um, I fought it, fought it, fought it, and then she came out with that one song, "Shake It Off," and I was like, "All right, you got me. You basically just caught me like a catfish in Florida, and I'm done." <laughs> it, that is SNL did that skit about how that song caught everybody as her fan. Yeah. And it could not have been more true. Every single person was like, this song is way too catchy to hate her anymore. And all of a sudden you were like, okay. I hate her that she she came out with that song because I liked not liking her because I didn't want to be like everyone else. And now I'm like, God, now I have to like you. That was the same point that I turned my corner on her. I was just like, well, all right, well played. Well played. (laughs) Well, I think that it's a great way to end this episode talking about Taylor Swift. But before we go, I want to play with, um, I want to play with you. Oh my God. All right. (laughs) I'll actually be in um, St. Pete at the end of, of March. So we definitely should meet at some point, not to play with each other. We're both married, but I would love to come see you do stand up. But I want to play the game. Let's get grounded. So I want you to pick a color. Um, green, yellow, purple, red, or blue? Uh, purple. Everyone picks purple. I should change around the questions. All right. This is the best question, though. All right. So on a flight from Los Angeles to Sydney, if you could sit next to any famous person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Ooh, dead or alive. Why do you yeah. think that? That's too many options. Dead or now, alive. This is a big, yeah, this is important. If I choose a dead person, they're not still dead, right? Because that would be the worst trip of all time. It's just a corpse there. Then it would be like um, Weekend at Bernie's and no. No, no. No, you can bring them back to life for this one moment. Yeah. I would say, I'll give you two. I'll say for dead, it would be Mark Twain. Um, And again, it's about the satire. It's about the writing. It's about the starviness. It's about how well he did American humorism type thing. I think it would be fascinating to talk to him, you know, not only just get his point of view of like, you're in a flying machine, but also um, 
<laughs> yeah, that's what his view on the world at that time was so revolutionary. It was just, it was fantastic. So, uh, I think Mark Twain would be would be a great one okay. uh, for me. And then alive, I mean, it's a, uh, that's a really hard one. Alive to me would be really hard because part of me would say Jerry Seinfeld for comedy, who's an idol of mine in comedy because he's so smart about it and be able to pick his brain. Uh, but at the same time, um, I find somebody like Barack Obama out of office so fascinating because he can be more of himself. Right. And anybody who's in office. He'd buy you beers. He'd buy you drinks on the plane for sure. Yeah. And I think that would be, I would love to just have a conversation with him and just have a candid, fun, stuck next to me conversation would be fantastic. Now, here's the important question. It's about a, from, from LA to San Sydney, it's probably about 14 and a half hours. Would you sit in a middle seat between the two of them? I would. I feel like I'm probably, well, Barack's tall. I mean, I feel like the short guy should go in the middle seat, but I would. I would sit in the middle seat. It's fine. Very good. Very good. Thank you. You know, I have a Jerry Seinfeld short story real quick. I went to Clusterfest in San Francisco. It's like a weekend long um, comedy show. And I saw him, yeah. Bill Burr interviewed him and he wasn't doing stand up. It was just like an interview. And I started crying when Jerry Seinfeld started talking. Now I've watched every episode of Seinfeld like twice. I've watched comedians in cars having coffee, but to hear him, to be in the same room with him and hear him talk about comedy, my, I just started crying. It was like seeing Jesus on stage. It's what I love about him. He's so conceited, but matter <laughs> of fact on knowing exactly where he's at type thing, you know? And maybe it's not conceded because conceded is an overinflation. He knows where he is and he knows where he's not, where he's good and where he's not. And just that self-awareness is fascinating to me. He's so smart about it. Yeah, it'd be, I can only imagine how fun it would be to hear a talk in real life. Well, thank you, Jeff, for calling in. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you being so open and honest. And I enjoyed this conversation. So thank you. Um, Please hoe yourself out now. Tell everyone where they can find you, what, what your next shows are. This is your moment to, to advertise for yourself. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on. I had an absolute blast, and I'm sorry you had to wake up early for it. It's but okay. you can find me on pretty much all social media uh, at that Jeff is funny. T-H-A-T-J-E-F-F is funny. I shouldn't have to spell all that out. They're easy words. Um, you can find... Uh, I need to change my YouTube handle, but it's Swell Fellow Productions. That was an old production company I had. Um, or JeffKleinComedy.com has all my upcoming dates on it to make life easy for people. And, uh, and Joe, when you come to St. Pete, you and your husband can come over and meet the chickens. I, well, I'm going to come and pick eggs. Now, can you please tell us what your YouTube name is again? Because it didn't come through clear. Sure. It is Swell Fellow Productions. Like I'm a 1920s gangster. Uh, swell fella s-w-e-l-l-f-e-l-l-a and then productions perfect thank you jeff i really appreciate it thank you so much all right talk to you soon all right take care thank you all right sounds good okay bye ladies and gentlemen if you enjoyed this week's episode of grounded with flight attendant joe please subscribe to the podcast you'll get alerts when new episodes air also, check out Flight Attendant Joe on Facebook and Instagram. And if you still haven't had enough of me, 
<laughs> Check out the blog at www.flightattendantjoe.com.